It's Thursday, October 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The NFL has had its first COVID-19 team outbreak as 10 members of the Tennessee Titans have had positive tests after their last game with the Minnesota Vikings. In response to this, the NFL has postponed the upcoming Week 4 game against the Steelers. The Titans coach has said that some of the people infected are experiencing flu-like symptoms. Matt Bonesteel, sports reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how the NFL will respond to this outbreak. Next, the first debate between President Trump and Joe Biden was a messy affair. Both candidates were talking over each other and hurling insults. Even the debate moderator, Chris Wallace, got caught in the fighting. Many people walked away thinking that the performance from both candidates was embarrassing. Still, there were some points scored and missed opportunities. President Trump refused to denounce white supremacist groups, and Joe Biden dodged a question about packing the Supreme Court. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for a breakdown of the debate. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I do want to tip my hat to the two teams that are involved, Tennessee and Minnesota. I think their medical staffs have done an amazing job. We've obviously been on the phone since five o'clock this morning uh, working through this. And they all moved very aggressively and, and simply asked, what do we need to do? And took those steps. The, the, there was tremendous cooperation and collaboration, as you'd expect. Joining us now is Matt Bonesteel, sports reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. The NFL has had its first COVID-19 team outbreak. There's 10 members of the Tennessee Titans that have come down with positive tests for COVID-19 in the past few days. This comes after a game that they had with the Minnesota Vikings. I don't think anybody on the Vikings has tested positive, but it's kind of thrown everything into disarray. They've had to stay away from their facilities. I think the upcoming Sunday game between the Titans and the Pittsburgh Steelers has been postponed. So there's a lot of moving parts with this. So Matt, walk us through this. What do we know? So yesterday, yesterday morning, it broke that a bunch of Titans players and a few staff members, including probably some coaches, assistant coaches, had tested positive for coronavirus. And it wasn't as quickly established that these were not going to be false positives, that they had tested positive probably multiple times. So that sort of threw a wrench into the planning for the first time since they announced their coronavirus protocols that the league really had to scramble to figure out what they were going to do next. I think they had to expect something like this was going to happen, but it's the first time it actually did happen. How often are the players tested? Because my understanding is that they're not tested on game days. They're not. They're tested every day but game day. I think the thinking behind that is that they don't want a possible false positive four hours before a game to have somebody ruled out because of a false positive so close to game time would be unfair to the players and the team. So I think the thinking is that, you know, let's just do it six days a week and that will cover all the bases we need to. So uh, the system has worked so far and it seems to be working now. I mean, you know, these players were tested, they've been isolated and they are going to move forward from here. So what's the protocol now? Now that they've tested positive, the league this year started this uh, COVID-19 injured reserve Mm -hmm. designation. So what do these players that have fallen ill with this now, what do they do? How do they get back? It depends on if they're showing any symptoms or not. If if they uh, test positive with the coronavirus and they're starting to feel bad, it says that they can't return for 10 days. 
since the symptoms first appeared and then 72 hours since the symptoms last occurred. So if these players are showing symptoms, they're going to be out for, I mean, not a significant amount of time. It's not like they tore an ACL, but they are probably going to miss at least one game and maybe two, depending on the timing. And then if they're not showing symptoms, they can get back a little quicker if they take two coronavirus tests in 24 hours and pass and come up negative in both. So it all depends on if they are showing any symptoms. What do we know about the status of those players? Because the Titans coach said, I told some reporters that some of them are experiencing some flu-like symptoms, nothing out of the ordinary. I mean, they're young guys that are healthy, so hopefully they really don't get any severe symptoms out of it. But what do we know about them? And then beyond that, obviously this is probably a little trickier, but do we know how they got it? No, there's been nothing about that. And the NFL worked out a deal with the Players Association when they were coming up with all the coronavirus protocols. You know, they weren't going to say specifically that anyone actually tested positive, but the Titans on Tuesday put three players on the COVID-19 reserve list, which is sort of, you know, where they can just make these roster moves based on the week. So it's easy to put two and two together and sort of see that these three players, a defensive lineman, a long snapper, and a tight end were the three players who tested positive at least on Monday or Tuesday. So the NFL wants to respect the players' privacy as much as they can, but they still have to put names on the reserve list, so it's easy to figure out which players it was. And so what does this do now for the scheduling? The Titans game against the Steelers has been postponed, but... When do they make that up? And then I guess the Vikings game against Houston is still on for now. They're waiting for some more tests. So hopefully nothing happens there and they can keep going. But how does this affect all the scheduling now? The Steelers Titan game is postponed. The NFL is saying that it will be played either Monday or Tuesday. And looks like from the latest right before I got on with you, looks like the reports coming out of various camps, the TV camp, the Steelers camp is that the game is going to be played Monday. Mike Tomlin told the reporters that they're practicing as if the game is going to be played Monday. And apparently the CBS crew has been told to get ready to be on Monday. So the like we're going to have some sort of doubleheader on Monday night, which, you know, more football on, <laughs> on Monday good. night. That's great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, the Vikings-Sexons game is still a go for Sunday. They have not changed that. The Vikings GM told reporters today that they're optimistic that their headquarters is going to be reopened tomorrow and they can get back to practice. They have not had any positive tests in Minnesota, so it looks like that game is a go. I know you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but talk to me about the effectiveness of the overall protocols. You know, it seems like the NBA's bubble seemed to be the best one of all. Obviously, you can't really do that with the NFL. There's a lot more moving parts, but uh, it seemed to have worked this time. You know, they at least kind of contained it. Hopefully nobody on the Vikings comes down with anything. But so far, it seems to have worked. You know, the testing every day and all that, you know, the sports teams at least got through it. They knew something was going to happen, but they're adjusting as they go. Yeah, I I think the NFL has done as best a job they can without going into a bubble, which, as you said, is pretty much impossible for pro football. So they test every day except for one day. And I think the players realize that this is the livelihood that they have and they cannot risk messing with that really. So I think they've been really good about wearing their masks and not going out all that much and staying in. And I think it's turned out as about as well as the NFL could have hoped. You know, they had a bunch of positive tests right when training camp started, but they followed their procedures and got those all cleared up. And we've had so far three weeks of football without much incident. Now we have a little bit of a blip on the fourth, but it looks like they've handled it about as well as they possibly could. We'll see if it happens again down the line.
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's kind of expected that it will, but the way they adjust is, is important. And hopefully, obviously, you know, nobody else gets sick and we can get back to it because it is a really fun escape that we all want and need right now. Matt Bonesteel, sports reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland? Are you prepared to to specifically do it? I I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Ginger, we've been doing this a long time together. We have you on every week to talk politics. And I know throughout your career, you've covered Joe Biden extensively. So wanted to bring you on to talk about the debate. Overall, it was kind of a mess. It was the mess that we expected. And then the, the mess that people, you know, words throwing around on the Internet were ashamed, embarrassment. This is not what America is about. You know, really strong feelings about how President Trump and Joe Biden carried themselves Everybody was fighting. Even the moderator, Chris Wallace, got thrown into the fray. Overall, it was a messy, messy affair. What did you think, Ginger? I keep describing us as the frog in the pot, and we were a bit of the frog in the pot yesterday. We had long been predicting that Donald Trump was going to just throw every attack he could imagine at his opponent long before he even had an opponent. And that that was going to be his sort of strategy, his way of winning, convince the American public that the other person is worse and that he might not be their favorite, but the other person is worse. And we saw that in practice yesterday. He was just tossing out attack after attack. He spoke almost nonstop for 90 minutes of the debate, frequently interrupting. Moderator Chris Wallace was trying to stop him and couldn't. And then we saw Joe Biden kind of offering two different approaches to how he handled Trump in the beginning, trying to sort of get down and tussle with him, offering criticism of the president and then calling him names. We saw him call him a clown, said he was the worst president ever, telling him to shut up, man. And then he sort of pivoted midway through the debate and we saw him do a little bit of a different tactic, talking directly to the camera, addressing the voters. And the response to that has been that was a little bit more positively received. People thought that that was a better approach for Joe Biden. I mean, at some point you have to kind of ignore being talked over and take charge on that front. Going back to Chris Wallace, I really respect him. I think he's a great newsman, and a lot of people in the industry do. And he was put in a kind of no-win situation for the debate, but you know he just did a really bad job of controlling the scene there. And it's hard with the president. You know he's gonna blow over you and everything, but really couldn't contain anything that was happening on the stage. And I was just seeing a lot of people calling for things like, "Can we turn the mics off for the next debate? Can both campaigns maybe agree to something like that?" The rules and the allowing their opponents to speak uninterrupted was negotiated by the campaigns. That was something they had agreed to, and it wasn't abided by. We did see on Wednesday the Commission on Presidential Debates, the sort of nonpartisan group that puts these events on, saying that they are looking at rule changes or some type of adaptions that would hopefully prevent this sort of melee that we saw on Tuesday night from happening again. That's still going to be very difficult. They have to get both campaigns to sign off on any changes, and maybe they could implement a mic shutoff. Maybe they could implement a clock. But keep in mind that 
Trump does what Trump does. And even though his campaign agreed to these rules, he was really just interrupting the entire hour and a half and didn't show any signs that it was an accident. I mean, this was intentional. He was doing it on purpose. He thought that was the best look for him. I completely felt the exasperation that Chris Wallace must have felt, especially when he confronted both of them and said, hey, look, guys, we need to get this under control. The campaigns agreed to these terms. Let's move on to some missed opportunities that happened throughout the debate. Obviously, it was hard to really get anything as far as policy or anything because everybody was just fighting so much. But the biggest missed opportunity, I think, obviously, is the president when Chris Wallace asked him to denounce white supremacy and militia groups. And the president just fumbled the whole thing. I know Joe, you know, he asked him, well, who? Give me a name. Joe Biden shouted out the Proud Boys. And then Donald Trump just said, Proud Boys, stand down and stand by. And the Proud Boys group took that as a calling to them. You know, they said, we stand with you, Mr. President. We're standing by. It was just a huge debacle for the president, I thought. That's right. You know, he was asked by Wallace to denounce these groups sort of broadly. He says, sure. So he doesn't sort of combat it at first. And then says, give me a name, as you said. And when they gave him a name, uttered this line that will absolutely be the probably the most remembered line of the first debate and could end up being the most remembered line of all of the 2020 debates, the standby. It was seen not as a denunciation, not as a call for them to stop the violence that they've perpetuated, but as a just wait, other orders are coming. And I, I will tell you what to do later. On Wednesday, leaving the White House, President Trump said he had never heard of the Proud Boys. He didn't know who they were. He talks often about Portland. Trump does and what's happening there in Portland. This is a group that's been very active in Portland. So it's something that you would imagine he would have encountered before, given how often he talks about the city, but definitely was just a moment that I think was shocking and that has had a lot of fallout. I mean, we've seen Republican senators on the Hill on Wednesday saying that the president should have denounced white nationalism, saying that the president didn't mean what it sounded like he said. This was clearly not a good moment for the president, and that's been echoed by his party. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly the easiest lob that he received throughout the debate from Chris Wallace. You see it play out on the Internet. One of the Proud Boys organizers, his name is Joe Biggs, he went on to Twitter and saying, you know, we're standing by, we're ready to go. The president turned this into a call for Joe Biden to denounce Antifa. This is one of the things that the president has been hitting on a lot. And even on Wednesday, speaking to reporters, they gave him the opportunity again to denounce these types of groups. And he says, well, no, Joe Biden needs to denounce Antifa. That's the switch around that the president's trying to do. And I think that we're seeing sort of what happens in a campaign when the president doesn't want to say anyone he thinks will support him should do anything that they don't want to do. This is the ramifications of that. This is what we've seen before. And this is sort of the thing that really motivated Joe Biden. So it'll be interesting to see what it does to the electorate in the coming days. A missed opportunity for Joe Biden, I thought, when they were speaking about the Supreme Court and he was pressed on if he would pack the court, if he would add more justices to kind of even things out. Joe Biden dodged that question. He kind of tried to switch it around uh, to some other things. But I think that could have been an opportunity for him to just say one way or the other. He didn't. And this is something he has said before in the past that he would not do, that he would not pack the courts if he were president. Right. So Uh, why not just say it again? Yeah, it would be an easy thing to say again. There's footage of him saying it. But this is something that he wants the liberal part of his party to think he might do. And so that's why you don't see him countering Trump saying that he would pack the courts, because politically, Biden likes the ambiguity there. He likes the uncertainty. And even though it seems very unlikely that he would do it, 
I think there's a little bit of a hope that his liberal base believes Donald Trump when Donald Trump says that he would. So he could have easily taken that moment to say, nope, wouldn't do that. And he didn't. Definitely a a political move on the vice president's part. Let's talk about some points scored. For Joe Biden, I thought, uh, obviously, on the coronavirus, he was pretty strong. The president didn't really have too many rebuttals that broke through. And maybe one of his strongest moments, you know, he was being pressed on the Green New Deal and the left wing of the party. And Joe Biden clearly said, I am the Democratic Party right now, trying to take charge of it. So I thought that was a strong moment. It was. I think another strong moment that we saw during the debate was when he talked about his son, Hunter, and Bo, talking about his son, Bo, served in the military, who since died of brain cancer. And then Trump wanted to talk about Hunter. And Biden came back and said, let me tell you, my son has a drug problem. And I thought that was a very powerful moment, sort of taking Trump's repeated attacks against his son and trying to humanize it and turning to the camera and saying, those of you at home that have had a loved one with a drug problem also understand and making it something that you might not dislike Biden for, but instead have a little bit of empathy for him as someone who's who's had that life experience. How about points for President Trump? I thought he stumped Joe Biden when he was asking him, you know, on the law and order thing, you know, what law enforcement agencies have endorsed you? And Joe Biden really didn't have any response to that. That was a big moment for the president. Biden couldn't list a law enforcement agency that has endorsed him. You know, that he has had the backing of firefighters. Uh, the firefighters union has supported and endorsed Vice President Biden. So that was one he could have used. And instead of trying to get his way out of that question, he sort of looked like he was stumped. The president also, the win for him is one that is uh, also bigger in that the tone, the demeanor, the interrupting that so many people were saying just made the debate so unbearable. His supporters were cheering. I mean, we have to remember that that's part of his aesthetic, that the guy who will impose his will, who will get things done, who will make people listen. And I think that there were many in his base that felt like he was doing what he was supposed to be doing in a debate and and thought that that was a win for him. So at the end of this whole thing, what does this mean for the very slim number of people who are undecided? For being honest, it means very little. We know that debates are only talking to a small number of people. We know that most people aren't making their minds up from what happened to the debates. They're watching the debates to cheer for the person they've already decided that they're voting for. But if we had to guess, it looked like, based on polling, that Biden maybe won the debate, although that doesn't always mean they win the election. And that if we're looking at undecided voters, that he might have swayed a few more people. Trump was really betting that Biden would make a big stumble or have like a, a senior moment and that didn't happen. He might not have given him an opportunity to since he kept interrupting him so often. <laughs> exactly. um, but it looks like at the end of the day, that was sort of the takeaway. And going into the next debate two weeks from now, the pressure still remains on Trump to make a move, to shift the electorate in some way. And, and that did not change after last night's debate. Yeah. And millions of people have already requested their mail-in ballots. As you mentioned, they know where they're going. A lot of them have already cast them, sent them back in. So really, these debates don't do anything for those people. Uh, you know, So uh, it's just kind of a uh, wait and see. And, uh, you know, maybe they won't even be other debates. There's already there's already talk about that. So it's still going to be very unpredictable. But I'm game for another one if everybody else is. So we'll, get, we'll wait for that to happen. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.